Hi, I'm Joe Jakevich, and welcome to the Story Lanes podcast, the podcast where every episode we do a deep dive into a movie or TV show. And to go along with this analysis, I publish a chart of the story we're covering on the storylanes.com website, a chart I produced while preparing the episode. You don't need to look at that chart, the podcast is standalone. But if you're interested in diving a little deeper, check it out at storylanes.com. This week we're doing Shaun of the Dead, the 2004 zombie comedy written by Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright, and directed by Edgar Wright. It stars Simon Pegg, Kate Ashfield, and Nick Frost, and it makes me laugh. As usual, this podcast assumes you've seen the movie. There will be spoilers, and there won't be detailed explanations of plot points. So if you listen to this without knowing the movie, you're out of luck. The movie will be spoiled for you, and you may not understand what I'm talking about. It's basically the worst of all worlds. So go watch Shaun of the Dead if you want to listen to this podcast. It's a funny movie and relatively low gore for a zombie movie. But first, an announcement. I'm afraid I'm going to have to switch over to publishing these podcasts every other week instead of weekly. It takes a little longer to prepare an episode than I can do in a week, and so we're switching to every other week. So, after this episode, the next one will be two weeks from now. Sean of the Dead is the story of Sean, a guy who is just going through the motions of his life when the zombie apocalypse hits. At first, he doesn't even notice that the living dead are wandering the streets of London, given how bland things are for him normally. But eventually he notices and rises to the occasion, discovering his inner zombie-killing warrior. There's some interesting things to look at in the structure of this movie. It doesn't much follow our standard story models. In fact, there's things about this movie that bring into the question the idea of acts and how best to identify them. But we'll also look at how the film adds humor to almost every scene. Even when things look dire, they're also funny. This will give me a chance to pontificate about my theories of humor and why horror and comedy often work so well together. So it's going to be a fun episode with lots of good stuff to dive into. And as usual, let's start with characters. Why exactly are these the perfect characters for us to accompany in a humorous trip into the zombie apocalypse? The key thing to note about these characters is just how utterly mundane they are. There really isn't anything that distinguishes these people that makes them suitable to be heroes of a zombie apocalypse. Which, of course, is the source of much of the comedy in this movie. This is a movie about how utterly normal people face the zombie apocalypse and how little it changes them. Okay, there might be one exception to my utterly mundane comment about these characters, and that's Sean. It turns out that Sean has something in him, something that causes him to step up and provide leadership in this crisis. At his core, he has a certain ability to keep calm and carry on. Though it's fairly deeply hidden, we wouldn't think it to look at him. On the surface, Sean is a bit of a schlub, a good guy but one in a deep rut. His life is a matter of going to his dead-end job, hanging out with his buddy Ed and going to his favorite pub, the Winchester, with his girlfriend Liz. He once had bigger dreams, but he's given them up. Well, somewhat bigger. We get a couple of references to how Sean used to be a DJ, but no longer is. And no offense to DJs, but that seems like a fairly low-effort creative project, one that requires less talent or practice than playing a musical instrument. Sean is, by and large, a disappointment to the people around him. His girlfriend Liz wants a little more out of life, really just a chance to go out to dinner at a real restaurant without being surrounded by the gang. 
and Sean's mom, Barbara, deserves the occasional bouquet of flowers for Mother's Day. But Sean struggles to provide these simple things. He can't manage to get reservations for a decent restaurant, and he only remembers to bring a late bouquet when reminded by his stepdad, Philip. Still, he's a decent fellow, he cares about the people in his life, and he makes an effort to care for them. He's just a guy who is awfully deep in his rut. There is one key thing we should note about Sean, however. Although he steps up in the crisis and is better suited than most of these characters to dealing with the apocalypse, we're definitely grading on a curve here. He screws up in some fundamental ways, like when he thinks he's led the zombies away and given them the slip, but it turns out that they followed him back. And also, even his plans in the apocalypse aren't all that different from his daily rut. His idea of a great plan is to get his gang together and hang out at the Winchester. Which, as it turns out, isn't that great a plan. Of the group, only Sean and Liz survive. Sean's best friend Ed is one of those goofball man-children that show up in a lot of comedies. He's quick with a fart joke, never takes offense, and has a real talent for enjoying his life. His only talent, really. Someone who doesn't take anything seriously, and someone whose inability to take things seriously adds humor and levity to this movie. Ed doesn't even get all that upset when he's bitten by a zombie. He still makes fart jokes in the face of his impending death. And when he does become a zombie, he's still a guy that Sean hangs out with. Liz, Sean's girlfriend, also seems fairly conventional. There's not a huge amount that makes her stand out as a character. She wants more out of life than Sean will provide, but even then, it's not much. A dinner out, a chance to spend some time with Sean without Ed around. And she is fairly good in a crisis. Not as good as Sean, perhaps, but better than anyone else in this film. Liz's friends David and Diane are comic types. David is a stuffy buffoon, self-involved and with a crush on Liz that sets up some good comic conflict between him and Sean. Diane doesn't register too strongly, except that her background as an actor is the source of some laughs. Barbara, Sean's mom, is an exaggerated, self-denying sweet woman who, again, is funny in how she underreacts to the crisis. And her husband Philip is a bit grumpy and stuffy, but turns out to have his heart in the right place. So, an utterly mundane set of characters. And that's the point of this movie. We see how completely normal people who are not particularly suited to an apocalypse respond to one. And they respond by very much being themselves with all their normal petty bickerings, their standard responses to life, and their limited imaginations. So with those characters in place, let's look at the story structure. First thing to note, this is an unusually long script. The screenplay runs 130 pages, where usually screenplays don't go above 120. This is especially noteworthy because the film itself is only an hour and 40 minutes. So clearly this is a violation of the page-per-minute rule of thumb. The main reason for that is that this film is full of dialogue. Even when there's action, characters are usually talking, giving a steady stream of humorous conversation. And dialogue pages usually go faster, thus this script runs long. Beyond that, the script has a non-standard structure with a couple of interesting points and some unusually long scenes. In fact, the climactic scene when the zombies swarm the Winchester goes on for 19 pages, by far the longest scene in any of the films I've analyzed to date. We'll get to that one, but it provides some interesting points to analyze, given that it's longer than most sequences. Now this is another of those films that starts with a teaser. 
but this one doesn't start with a big action set piece. It's a conversation at the Winchester that introduces the main characters, Sean, Liz, Ed, David, and Diane, as well as the Winchester itself. It does this in a humorous scene in which Liz complains about the rut that they are in. This particular scene, however, is almost entirely dialogue, and it goes on for five and a half pages, a long time for a scene. But at the end of it, we know these characters and know the basic conflicts between them. We then drop into a title sequence, and one that is described in detail in the script, something that is fairly unusual. This title sequence shows a series of people plodding along through life, already half zombies. It does a lot to set up the humor of the film, as well as establishing the theme. It's nice to see the title sequence already thought out by the screenwriters. This is a good example for all of us who write scripts. A title sequence can provide a little more canvas on which to tell your story. After the titles starts Act 1, and as usual, Act 1 is all about setup, and there's hints of the coming zombie apocalypse, but no actual zombies attacking any of our main characters as yet. There's four major sequences in this first act. The first is Sean at home, where we see his home life, living with Ed and Pete. Then Sean goes to work and we get a view of his work life as a clerk at an electronics store. Then comes a sequence in which Liz breaks up with Sean. This serves as one of the inciting incidents of the movie. When Liz dumps Sean, she breaks his pattern. It starts him on the emotional journey in which he has to step up and show himself worthy of her. Of course, this is only one of the inciting incidents. The other key plot line is the zombie apocalypse. But there isn't one particular incident that kicks that off. Throughout this setup act, we see signs that zombies are coming. Sirens constantly wail in the background. The occasional zombie roams the streets of London. We never see a patient zero of the zombie apocalypse. It just sort of seeps its way into the story. Finally, there's a sequence in which Sean and Ed go out drinking, and Ed consoles Sean for the loss of Liz. And then we're done with the setup act. On a personal note, I love this act. As a zombie film connoisseur, this is the only example I can think of where we see this particular moment of the zombie apocalypse. Things are starting to go south, but nobody really notices it. And there's some of the funniest stuff in the movie here, where zombies appear but Sean doesn't recognize them as such. And it feels very real, especially as I sit here sheltering in place during the COVID pandemic. I look back to January and February of this year, when the news started coming out of the pandemic but I largely ignored it and went about my day-to-day -day life. Given that experience, I expect that if individual zombies started popping up in my neighborhood, I'd be just as oblivious as Sean is here. Anyway, at the end of Act 1, Sean falls into a drunken rest. He next wakes up in a brand new day and a brand new act, and we're now in Act 2. As I've explained before, there's a lot of different ways that you can identify act breaks. In my mind, from here on out, the acts in Shaun of the Dead are largely distinguished by their setting. In this thinking, Act 2 all takes place in or around Shaun's house, where he lives with Ed and Pete. Act 3 is on the road, and Act 4 is in the Winchester. Now, Act 1 is where Shaun first encounters zombies, right in his living room in his backyard. It is where he first kills a zombie and where he settles on a plan for how to deal with this strange new world where he finds himself. There's two major sequences. In the first, Sean and Ed meet their first zombies as a pair shows up in their backyard. 
They have their first fumbling attempts to dispatch the walking dead, and those attempts are amusingly ineffective. Then they get their groove as Sean seizes on the cricket bat that he'll use for much of the movie. Two zombies down and the zombie apocalypse is on. So they need to figure out what they're going to do next, and the next sequence shows them settling on a plan and taking the first steps to implement it. And their plan is, basically, to gather their loved ones and head to the Winchester. Which is, of course, what they do even if there weren't a zombie apocalypse. And now we're in what I think of as Act 3. And just as Act 2 was associated with Sean's house, Act 3 is the road trip in which Sean gathers his loved ones and sets off for the Winchester. First, he and Ed get on that road. Their goal in this sequence is to get Barbara, Sean's mom. They succeed in this, though Philip, Barbara's husband, has been bitten by a zombie and is getting sick. Now Sean has to get Liz, so they head off to Liz's apartment and pick up her and her apartment mates, David and Diane. And now they have to get to the Winchester. There's some hijinks on the way, and Philip dies and becomes a zombie. But they finally get there, and the act ends, an act that was defined by this physical journey from Sean's house to the Winchester, with stops to pick up Barbara, Liz, and their various hangers-on. It's a nice, clean act, three sequences, which is fairly standard for an act. Pick up Barbara, pick up Liz, get to the Winchester. And now, the next act of the film is all at the Winchester. There is a brief sequence in which the others wait for Sean to return from distracting the zombies. Then a sequence where they are pretty much just filling the time. And then, finally, the climactic sequence in which Barbara dies, the zombies swarm the Winchester, and only Sean and Liz escape unbit. Looking at this just from structural terms, this is a somewhat confusing act. By location and time, it feels like one continuous act. But there's definitely a shift in tone, pace, and feel when Barbara dies. This is the first time someone we really care about dies, and it hits Sean and us hard. Barbara is an endearing character, and her death makes us sad. More to the point, Barbara's death leads to a dramatic escalation of the conflict between David and Sean, climaxing in David trying to shoot Sean. And that leads directly to the zombies swarming the Winchester and the climactic zombie apocalypse scene that follows. So should the climax after Barbara dies count as a separate act? It's hard to say that it should, given that there's no jump in time or space. In fact, the shift here takes place in the middle of a scene, that 19-page monster of a scene. So if this is a separate act, the act break is in the middle of a scene, which is certainly unusual. Anyway, now they're out of the Winchester and things are good, and we flash forward six months to see what happens next. Here's another something we haven't seen before, because I think of that flash-forward section as a postscript. It's not quite a full act, it's less than three pages long, but it doesn't feel like part of the previous act. The setting, tone, and time is much different. I think it stands by itself. This is the first time we've seen a postscript in one of these films, a short sequence that tells us what happens after the main events of the body of the film. So overall, there's a couple of odd structural elements here. There are acts that are clearly identifiable by their settings, but we have that weird fourth act which is unified in time and place, but which feels like there's a shift in tone and tempo, a shift that suggests that maybe it should be considered a different act. And if we don't view it as separate acts, then this movie doesn't have one climactic act, but rather a climax that is only part of a larger act. 
and there's a scene that is 19 pages long, a giant monster of a scene. Wow, pretty strange. So what's the solution? How should we break this beast into acts? Here's the thing. It doesn't really matter all that much. In a movie without intermissions, act breaks are just conceptual blocks that we use to try to make sense of the story structure. And it's perfectly fair to view the story through different lenses and to therefore think of it as having separate act breaks. If we view this story through the lens of what feels like separate acts, we must say that it has four acts, a teaser, and a postscript. But if we view it through a lens of growing and escalating tension, we might end up with something like traditional three-act structure, though still with that teaser and postscript. One thing I wonder, how did Wright and Pegg think of the structure of this film as they wrote it? I suspect they did not think in terms of acts, but rather in terms of settings and levels of tension. That's certainly how the film reads. It's an interesting note for the screenwriter. Again, story should trump all. So create the story and let others worry about acts. Acts can be useful tools to use to construct story, but they are not indispensable. Now, let's take a moment to think about three-act structure. I've noted the inciting incident, Liz dumping Sean, and I've noted the break into Act 2, when Sean goes to bed in a world where he can happily ignore signs of zombies and he wakes up in the zombie apocalypse. There really isn't much of a midpoint in this film if we mean by that some distinct event that causes the film to veer into a more serious mode. Oh, we could point to a couple of moments where the action pivots or there is a rise in tension, but they aren't major pivots like in a movie like Alien. No, these moments are things like Sean and Ed deciding to go rescue Barbara and Liz, a moment that happens on page 55 of this 130-page script. A second escalation point is when Philip dies, which happens on page 70. It's a dramatic moment, especially as it comes with a reconciliation between Sean and Philip. But it doesn't really change the course of the movie. Before Philip died, they were struggling to get to the Winchester. After he dies, they struggle to get to the Winchester. Then we have the turn into Act 3, and this is a confusing one. From a three-act structure standpoint, it would probably be the escalation of pace and tension that happens when Barbara dies on page 114, which is right in the middle of that 19-page scene which started on page 103. So 11 pages into a 19-page scene, that's the act break? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, of course, three-act structure doesn't have any provisions for a teaser or postscript. So all in all, I would have to say that three-act structure largely fails us here. I think this is a fairly clear example of a film that should probably not be viewed through the lens of three-act structure. Not surprisingly, given that it's just an expansion of three-act structure, Save the Cat also feels a little out of place. Now almost all the Save the Cat beats are here, though the opening and closing images don't tell us much about Sean's voyage. Well, not the opening image. The closing image actually does. The closing image is Sean sitting in the shed playing a video game with Zombie Ed, an image that tells us that Sean hasn't changed at all, not really. And there are some other twists on other Save the Cat beats. For example, the theme is never explicitly stated, but it is conveyed through visuals. Now I'd say that one of the themes of this movie is that we're all basically just going through the paces of our lives, that we're all zombies of a sort. And that is visually expressed in the title sequence, where we see living people trudging along like zombies. And that takes place on page 5, perfect placement according to Save the Cat. 
The debate moment also comes out a little differently in this movie, though to determine what the debate is, we have to settle on one of our two possible inciting incidents. If the inciting incident is Liz dumping Sean, then the debate is Sean's night at the Winchester with Ed, where he gets drunk and complains about Liz. But if the inciting incident is the emergence of zombies, then the debate is Sean's not recognizing that the zombies are coming. In essence, it is not Sean trying to decide whether or not to take action. It is Sean not even noticing that there's any action to take. We can also point to a couple of low points for Sean. Either could be viewed as his dark night of the soul and all his lost moments. The first is when he realizes that the zombies followed him back to the Winchester and are swarming right outside. The second is when Barbara dies. Two low points for the price of one. What a deal. But looking at this more seriously, I think the thing to note is that there is something inherently dramatic in having a protagonist have a bad moment. And it's fine having more than one such moment in a film. Just because Save the Cat says that there should be one all-is-lost moment doesn't mean that's gospel. Feel free to dump on your protagonist as often as you want. Maybe he has many things to lose, so can have many all-is-lost moments. Sean does. Anyway, that's Save the Cat. Similarly, most of the hero's journey beats are here, but not in the usual way. Now this is another case where we had multiple possible inciting incidents, but looking at things through the hero's journey perspective, it's very clear which one is the call to adventure. In this case, the call to adventure is definitely the appearance of the zombies. So the refusal of the call is Sean not even noticing that there are zombies. Again, it's a different and interesting way to refuse the call. Suppose you're more than willing to fight the fight, you just don't know there's a fight to be fought. That actually works quite well in a comedy like this. It's funny watching Sean be oblivious to this call. So screenwriter note, consider having your protagonist not notice the inciting incident. The tension between the protagonist going through his normal day and the world slowly changing around him can be funny, as it is here. Now the rest of the hero's journey beats are fairly standard. See the Storylanes analysis of the script for details on this and save the cat. That's at Storylanes.com. And now the theme. I think there's actually two themes of this movie. The first is that people in our modern world are a little zombie-like. There really is little difference when the zombies emerge between pre-zombie people and the zombies themselves. The film mines a lot of humor out of that, how Sean doesn't even realize the zombie apocalypse is well underway the first time he leaves the house in Act 2. But that's a theme that is mostly present for the first part of the movie, but that largely falls away in the midpoint. Though we do see glimpses of this at the end. When Sean first appears in the postscript, he behaves like a zombie. He shambles down the corridor and yawns in a way that a zombie moans. But most of all, at the end, Ed is a zombie, but he still plays video games with Sean. His behavior does not change when he becomes a zombie. Now, putting aside this theme in the midpoint, is a curious choice. You could imagine the film mining a lot of humor from zombies acting like living humans. Of course, that's been done in other films, so perhaps Peg and Wright didn't want to copy them. Still, this is a theme that sets up a lot of the humor in Acts 1 and early in Act 2, but then falls by the wayside. And that leads to the second theme, and that's that people are pretty much who they are even in the face of calamity. 
When the zombie apocalypse comes, these people pretty much behave the way they did before. Ed is still a goofball who doesn't take anything seriously and who tells fart jokes even as he's dying. Sean's mom is a quiet, doesn't-want-to-be-a-bother type, even after she's bitten by a zombie. David still has a bug up his butt about Sean. Liz is still uptight. And Sean, well, Sean's idea of the perfect hideout is still the Winchester. As David describes him, Sean is... A man whose idea of a romantic night spot and an impenetrable fortress are the same thing. It's, this, is a, this is a pub! We are in a pub! What are we going to do? People don't change in this movie. On this point, there's an interesting change from the screenplay to the movie. In the postscript part of the screenplay, we see a poster on the wall that advertises that Sean is DJing again. The implication is that he regains some of his mojo by fighting zombies. He did change, if only in a small way. But that is left out of the film, so instead, the film doubles down on Sean not changing. It's an interesting example of how a minor change in the final film results in an entirely different message in that film. And based on what we see in the postscript, the world did not change at all after the zombie apocalypse. From the glimpses we see on TV, everything is back to normal. It's just that zombies are incorporated into the same old world. Zombies are now used for cheap labor. Zombies appear as props on TV shows, whether goofball competition shows or tell-all talk shows. The world is pretty much just the way it used to be. Now in this podcast, I've been using the term zombie apocalypse, but in some ways it doesn't apply here. This isn't the zombie apocalypse. This is a one-time zombie outbreak that leaves no real impact on the world. Again, this is something I don't think I've seen in other zombie movies. It's kind of refreshing, and, I suppose, a message of hope. Even the zombie apocalypse will eventually pass and leave the world back as it was before. Not that I think that hope was necessarily the message that Peg and Wright intended to give. But do note that when Liz tells Sean what they are going to do that day, she says, Right, um, I'll cup of tea. Then, um, we'll get the Sundays. I don't think it's for a roast. Veg out in the pub for a bit. Then wander home, watch a bit of telly, go to bed. Perfect. It's exactly what they would have done before the apocalypse. In fact, we see here pretty much the only lasting change to any character. Before things went south, Liz was not content with being in a rut. But it's amazing what living through an apocalypse will do to one's perspective. At the end, she seems perfectly happy with an evening where the highlight is hanging around the Winchester. So the themes here are that people are generally not that different than zombies, and things don't change. Which are actually pretty good themes for a comedy. And now we get to the heart of the matter, an examination of the ways in which Shaun of the Dead exemplifies comedy, which gets us into a whole lot of theory about humor. So let me start off with a digression. What is Joe's theory of comedy? And I can't claim that this is original with me. Honestly, after all this time, I can't remember what the seeds of it were. Maybe it's mine. Maybe I stole it from somewhere. I can't honestly remember. I believe that laughter is a way that we humans deal with surprises that aren't that good. Basically, we laugh when two frames of reference conflict. The frame of reference that we expect and the frame of reference that actually occurs. So if something doesn't go as we expect in a great big way, we often laugh. Take that old joke, what's black and white and red all over. 
a newspaper. That joke works because in the question we hear the word red in the context of black and white, so we think it means the color red. But in the answer, we find out that red in the question is meant as R-E-A-D, red, and people read a newspaper all over, so it's red all over. The humor comes from the sudden shift in context and frame of reference, from a frame of reference that emphasizes color to one that is about reading a newspaper. Of course, there's another way that humans deal with unexpected and surprising shifts in context, and that's fear. If things are suddenly not what we expect, and as a result we feel in danger, then we feel fear. But if things are suddenly not what we expect, but we do not feel in danger, then we laugh. So, comedy is fear without danger, and fear is comedy with danger. And so there is a close relationship between comedy and horror, and horror comedy works out really well. You can use the same setups, and often even the same punchlines in both comedy and horror. But if there is no danger, people laugh, and if there's enough danger, they'll cower under their seats. So where is the comedy in Shaun of the Dead? I think there's a couple of major sources of humor in this movie. The first is in the ways that these characters respond to a zombie apocalypse. I expect that most people who watch Shaun of the Dead have seen at least one zombie movie before, and they are aware of the standard zombie movie tropes. Those tropes usually involve hardened warriors who are grimly focused on the challenge of surviving a zombie apocalypse. But that's not Shaun of the Dead. In Shaun of the Dead, there is nothing hardened about these characters. They're just normal people trying to cope. And when we see them respond in a normal way to zombies and not in some superhuman warrior style, we laugh because it's not what we're used to in this kind of film. The other thing these people do is that they lose sight of the crisis at hand. Ed plays a video game when there's a zombie horde at the door. David gets ready to storm out of the room in a huff, even though it means storming out into the land of the living dead. Barbara doesn't want to be a bother even when she's dying of a zombie bite. There's humor in all of these reactions, and people being unwilling or unable to be anything than what they are, even in the most extreme of circumstances. Again, it's a contrast of frames of reference. People are still behaving in the frame of reference of normal, polite society, even when the world is coming to an end. And on the other side, we have established frames of reference of what it's like to be in a zombie movie and how characters in a zombie movie behave, and when these characters do not match that frame of reference, it's funny. Of course, there's also humor here in looking at two things that seem much different and finding underlying similarities. Here it's kind of the opposite thing. We're looking at two frames of reference and then they merge together and we see that all along they were only one frame of reference. And that surprises us. We do not expect two things that seem very different to suddenly turn out to be the same. And so, we usually think of living people and zombies as two different things, but the movie points out several similarities. That's also funny. Now, of course, there's also other sources of humor in the film, the kinds of humor one would expect in any comedy. Ed's funny because he is so outrageous, and that means because he behaves in ways that we would not expect from anyone, like in his early fart joke. Oh, I'm sorry, Sean. It's all right. No, no. I'm sorry, Sean. Oh! <laughs> oh my god, that's rotten! I'll stop doing them when you start laughing. I am not laughing. His behavior conflicts with our mental frame of reference that defines normal behavior. 
Similarly, Sean's constant obsession with going to the Winchester under any circumstance is funny even before the zombies show up, because you'd expect him to know better after Liz specifically asks to go somewhere else. But when asked to provide an alternate plan when he can't get reservations to a fancy restaurant, what does he suggest? Liz, can we just talk about this, you know, let's go out. What, to the Winchester? Well, do you want to? Now both of these get callbacks in the zombie apocalypse. Once again, Ed makes a fart joke near the end of the film. The same fart joke, really. But this time, he's already been bitten by a zombie. Ed, I'm sorry. What for? Because, you know, I was shouting at you and that earlier on. It's all right. I'm sorry, too. It's okay. No. Uh, I'm sorry, Sean. Oh, God, God. <laughs> That's not funny. Stop doing it when you stop laughing. I'm not laughing. Which makes it even more of a contrast of frames of reference. You wouldn't expect him to make the same stupid joke when he's about to die of a zombie bite. Similarly, when Sean lays out his plan... Take car, go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? It makes us laugh, because again, he's taking something that seems completely out of context. And so it's funny. So note how the same joke plays. It's funny when it's set in real life, but it gets even funnier in the face of the zombie apocalypse. I added a lane to the story lane's analysis that points out the sources of comedy in any particular scene. But note, this is only the central humor in the scene. There's also plenty of other jokes sprinkled throughout the film. And while it goes beyond the scope of script analysis, we should also note that there are several visual jokes in the way that the film is shot and edited. The film is constantly using horror movie cinematic tropes and then undercutting them by having normal things happen. So for example, in the first act, Sean closes his medicine cabinet only to see Pete, his flatmate, revealed. It's a standard horror moment, the sudden reveal in a mirror. But it's only Pete, a normal guy, nothing to be scared of, so we laugh. But that is called back later when the same thing happens after Pete's a zombie. But it's still funny because we saw it once when Pete was alive, so now Pete being a zombie is a shift in context and thus humorous. Oh boy, they say that nothing is less funny than the explanation of a joke. I hope I didn't ruin the humor in Shaun of the Dead for you by analyzing it. But now let's move on to the screenwriting lessons. Here are three screenwriting lessons that I took from Shaun of the Dead. One, when writing a comedy, know where the funny comes from. That doesn't just mean scene by scene, though that's important too. It's good to have an overall central comic idea that you can turn to throughout the film. In fact, it doesn't hurt to have more than one of them. And the undercutting of movie tropes are a great source of comedy. See how Shaun of the Dead has the two major comic motifs, the interchangeability of living humans and zombies, and the way that people will continue to be their same old petty selves even in the face of a calamity. And how both of these are made funnier by all that we know of zombie movies. These are comic wells that Shaun of the Dead keeps going to, and they never run dry. 2. Note just how much comedy there is in this movie. Look at the story lane's analysis. Almost every scene has some humor in it. Even the dramatic or tragic scenes like Barbara's death has comic touches. 
If you're going to make a comedy, make it funny throughout. Dramatic twists are fine, maybe even necessary, but they should come with some laughs, even if only sad ones. 3. The screenplay goes hand-in-hand with the direction. Good direction enhances a screenplay. This isn't just a lesson for the screenwriter, of course, but if you really want your screenplay to fly, get a terrific director attached. And spoiler, I think Edgar Wright is an amazing director. He's one of my favorite living directors. Just watch Shaun of the Dead, and there's things here I didn't even mention in the podcast. Things like some of the amazing transitions between shots with motivated wipes and other editing tricks that you rarely see in modern films, but that worked amazingly here. Now that, of course, also involved the editor. So, let's actually expand this takeaway to say, make sure you have the best team you can for your movie. A screenplay is nice, but it's not enough, and film is definitely a collaborative medium. So that's Shaun of the Dead. As usual, I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something from it. If you want to see the Storylanes chart for this film, check it out at storylanes.com. Next time, we're going back to the 80s, and since we're going back in time, let's do Back to the Future, the great 80s time travel comedy. And remember, that's going to be two weeks from now, not next week. We are changing the schedule of the podcast. Sorry about that, folks. These just take too long for me to do in a week. Until then, this is Joe Jakevich of the Storylanes podcast. Check us out at storylanes.com. Talk at you later. Later.